Welcome to Inside the Rope, a podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark. I'm really pleased to bring you today an episode with Laurent Jeanmart, one of the principals and actual chairman of Catch. Catch is a funds management group and investor uh, headquartered out of the UK with a global footprint that has a real expertise in alternative assets and particularly private debt and structured finance around that. We're going to talk to him today about their litigation funding uh, investment vehicle, which is something I've not really come across a lot, but really offers a unique, uh, uncorrelated to markets source of return. Please remember that this podcast isn't designed, nor is it specific or general or personal advice. Uh, You're encouraged to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast and seek advice always before making any investments. Please do keep the emails coming through. The suggestions of who those leading minds in wealth management are is always valuable. Uh, you can email me at david.clark at codacapital.com. Some thank yous to our editor and producer, Josh Clark at Parakeet Productions, and thank you to Tom Oriel, uh, my associate who helps produce this as well. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. Laurent, welcome to Inside the Rope. Hello, David. Thanks for having me. Not at all. We always like to have the leading minds in wealth management on the show. Perhaps you could Thank start you. off by introducing yourself to the listeners uh, as to who you are and your background, please. Absolutely. Thank you, David. Um, well, I'm a Belgian uh, individual, uh, but I live in London. I run the London uh, is an outfit dedicated to liquid private debt. Um, I'm 45 years old. I've been in financial markets in one way, shape or form for the best part of 20 plus years now, almost 25 years now. And um, I've traded all sorts of asset classes from fixed income uh, to equities, to volatility, uh, to obviously alternatives in various um, different uh, ju- uh, jurisdictions and companies such as uh, BNP Paribas, uh, Lazard. Uh, I work for an insurance company uh, called Fidelis based in London and Bermuda and a couple of family offices as well before uh, founding Catch uh, about five years ago now. I'm glad that you highlighted the experience of being the chief investment officer in an insurance company because I think that's going to be quite pertinent when we discuss later on some of the structures and some of the features of the litigation funding vehicle that we're going to talk about. Laurent, can you talk a little bit about Catch as to the size of the organization, the footprint, uh, where its core expertise is? Absolutely. Uh, We've got uh, a bit more than five years of track records. Uh, We set set Catch up uh, at the beginning of 2017. We now have a little bit, a little bit more than than $500 million, American dollars of assets uh, under management. Uh, 38 staff, and we've got uh, four different uh, offices. If you look at how we are organized, uh, people say that we are top heavy. Uh, We've got a lot of very bright minds and people who are are very experienced uh, in the space of alternative credit. Um, And uh, we cover basically a fairly narrow range of different strategy in the liquid private debt space. Can you tell us a little bit about the litigation fund that we're going to concentrate on today? 
Absolutely. So this is a product that is very interesting. A litigation funding is is a very attractive uh, space. Um, as I said, I have traded, you know, a very large uh, different number of asset classes over time. Um, I have to say that litigation funding is probably the asset class that is the most attractive in everything that I've ever done. And that's because the terms of funding uh, are just uh, very good. Uh, if you look at uh, a random case in the UK, and we concentrate in the UK, you will see that um, you know um, when you back a case, uh, you have basically 50% chance of winning, which sounds logical, but the numbers do confirm that. And then uh, the average duration is about three years. You know, you're backing a case, uh, it takes quite a long quite a long time to, to get a result that's also quite uh, quite logical although there's quite a lot of uh, variability around the duration of a case you know it goes from a few months and that's where we concentrate up to two years which is up to 10 years sorry which is way too long for us uh, but the average is three years now where it gets very interesting is that if you invest let's say a million dollars on a case and if you lose, well, you lose a million dollars. But if you win, you win $4 million. And that asymmetry makes the terms of funding very interesting. So, just the, calculates... so the average win on these type of cases tends to be four times the amount of expenditure it costs to run a case. And, and where is that data compiled from or over what period? So you have various databases in the UK where you can see those numbers and derive some conclusions on a statistical basis. One of them is uh, called Solomonic. Uh, I think they cover around 3,000 cases uh, in the UK. So they collect the data from various sources. And um, I guess what's interesting is that, um, you know, if you calculate the internal rate of return of a portfolio of assets with the characteristics that I just described, you get to a number of 25.7% per annum. Now, what does that mean? That means that if you have... Uh, some capital to dedicate to litigation funding and you run a diversified portfolio, you should expect to be making 25% per annum. There's no asset class like this, uh, at least to my knowledge. And that's what makes it extremely attractive. Now you will see that we do something slightly different, but I just wanted to give you a sense of, you know, the playing field in which we operate. So the market and the asset class is very appealing just because of those sort of dynamics. And if somebody's got some skills and some smarts, they can do meaningfully better than that. Yes, that's, that's absolutely correct. So tell us about the fund. What, what is its objective and what, it's, it's, what is its history? Yes, yeah, so we, we launched that fund uh, a bit more than two years ago now on the back of um, you know, existing exposure inside a different product that we were running at Catch already back then. Uh, so we had a very positive experience and we decided that you know we wanted to offer to our clients uh, the ability to invest just in this asset class. At Catch, we uh, approach financial markets with the view that we should try to uh, offer a certain profile rather than exposure to a particular asset class. What we want to do is to generate track record that's very, very stable, visible, uh, uncorrelated with low volatility. Um, and, and um, you know, basically what should be a good replacement uh, for a fixed income investment. Now, with that in mind, we have structured the funds uh, with two different types of investors. 
we have ourselves invested heavily uh, in that product. Uh, when I say ourselves, I mean the catch investment group. And we have invested as a subordinated investor, right? Um, and then we offer to our clients a senior class, which means that as a senior investor, you have a fairly high degree of protection and you have a first claim on the performance of the fund itself. Now, uh, what that means exactly is that, uh, you know, our senior investors are offered performance that ranges from 8% net per annum to 16% net per annum. And what makes the difference between 8 and 16 is the amount of realized profits that we generate over the course of the year. The offering is effectively uh, to get up to 16% net per annum um, with a floor at 8%. Uh, and that basically as a senior uh, investor in the fund. And I think people can choose if they want to take that as income or have it distributed quarterly to have an income stream up front where other litigation funding vehicles, you, you tend to front end them with capital and then wait to harvest at the back end. Whereas in this model, you've structured a vehicle where you can provide cash flow on the way through it, call it 8% and up to another 8% in preferred equity participation, depending on the success of the, the 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 claims being run. That's absolutely correct, David. Um, and you are pointing to 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 a very interesting feature of the fund, which is that it's an open ended fund in the space in which we operate. Um, because typically, well, you know, a portfolio of litigation asset tends to be very illiquid. So generally, the structure that is best to run such a portfolio is a, is a private equity type structure where, as you know, you have to commit capital for, you know, five years, eight years, 10 years, a very long period of time. Because what we do is at the liquid end of the universe, uh, we are able to offer a, a product that is an evergreen product. So we have terms of liquidity that are for, for the asset class, I think quite attractive. It's quarterly liquidity um, provided a notice of, six months so you're only six to nine months away from your from your capital and we are able to do this because uh, the portfolio itself uh, is quite liquid but that makes for an interesting i think uh, you know to you know investing in in the space and how are you able to create the liquidity? Is that because you're running lots of smaller claims than rather big chunky claims? Correct. Yes. So our strategy is to fund small claims in very large volumes. And there are really a lot of um, advantages of doing this. Um, the way we do this is by funding uh, dedicated specialist law firms that are basically focusing exclusively on litigation in the UK. Uh, but if you look at our portfolio, if you look through those loans and you aggregate all the positions, you will see that we have in excess of 25,000 claims at the moment in the portfolio. And those claims have an average duration of a few months. So you do have uh, you know, a matching between the liquidity of the assets and the liquidity of the liabilities, um, which as you now know, uh, is something that uh, I'm particularly, you know, sensitive to be due, owing to the fact that 
you know, I was I was the CIO of an insurance company before. So asset liability matching is something that is dear to my heart. And that that sort of management of those portfolios, how do you go about finding them and selecting them and 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 sort of matching the duration if you'd like? So we uh, so those, those claims tend to have a fairly fairly similar duration across uh, the various sort of types of claims that we invest in. Um, part of it is because uh, in the UK, when you you deal with small claims, you go to a particular recourse, uh, which is a small claim courts, um, and there's also a fairly large proportion of settlement at some point. Um, you have to realize that those claims are very simple claims. Uh, you know, the legal backdrop behind them is very straightforward. We're not backing Google against Microsoft or Pepsi versus Coke. What we do is we identify a very clear abuse, typically of consumer, and um, we we study the legal backdrop. We look at historical statistics about the success rate of such claims and when we find interesting claims and then you know i guess the last brick uh, to that construction is to find the right uh, litigation firm to 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 back and to fund uh, and this firm typically has uh, a good track record a good balance sheet and um, the good structure to deal with those claims and and of course they have to be interested in getting funding well, that leads me to my next question. If these are very successful firms that know how to uh, progress these claims and, and run them uh, and they've got a track record and they know this and they know the dynamics of the industry, why are they borrowing money to do it or why aren't they borrowing the money from the bank or funding it themselves? It's a, it's a very good question. It's also it's a very interesting dynamic I guess that um, when you're running in a space where you make return on assets in excess of 100%, um, you're very well funded to say, look, you know, I'm not interested in your very expensive capital, uh, which is totally fair enough. And a lot of people do say that. Uh, in fact, you know, when they hear our terms of funding, oftentimes they're a bit shocked. <laughs> uh, on the other hand, because you operate in a super profitable space, there's logic in borrowing from, from someone to run instead of, let's say, 5,000 claims, 25,000 claims, or 50,000 claims. It makes for a different um, different approach. It's a different philosophy. Some people are up for it. Other people prefer not to, which is completely fine. But either way, there's enough for us to deploy capital efficiently and very profitably. And Laurent, how many claims would be in the portfolio at any one time? What level of diversification exists? So we have, if I look at the portfolio at the moment, uh, we've got in excess of 25,000 claims. Um, the fund has a bit more than 100 million uh, US dollars of assets under management. Uh, so, you know, that makes for an average claim size of a few thousand dollars a pound. Um, now, <clears throat> it's not as if we had 25,000 completely different claims. What we do have is claims that, uh, you know, are basically our clusters of claims, uh, so we have 10 to 12 different clusters, uh, which means 10 to 12 different types of claims. And inside each cluster uh, or stream of claims, uh, you have a very large number of very, very similar claims. So basically, for example, um, a claim based on abuse around car finance, uh, 
uh, that's one type of claim. And behind that type of claim, we've got maybe 1,500 claims. Um, so very well diversified, but at the same time, it's not as if we had to deal with every single claim independently. And how many firms would be running those cases for you? That would be, you know, eight to 10, basically. Okay, so a reasonable amount of diversification there. Can you talk a yeah. little bit about the insurance that you put in? One of the reasons I highlighted um, your insurance background is one of the things when I was researching this investment product is that there is actually an after-the-fact insurance policy. And, of course, London being the home of insurance markets, um, you know, this is a product that I'd never come across um, and, and had done and have done a little bit of research on it, but I'd love you to explain how you can get an insurance policy in place after the fact that there is a known incident and that you're essentially insuring against loss of running the case and having to pay the other side's uh, legal costs. Absolutely. So the name of the insurance policy that we buy or more exactly, that the law firm buys on our behalf um, is uh, an after-the-event policy, which is a bit of a misnomer because you don't buy the insurance after, you buy the, the insurance before. But what that really means is that, um, you know, in the UK, if you have, um, if, if you, if you, um, if you go to court and you lose, then you have to pay the other side's cost. Uh, that's quite systematic. Now, to protect yourself as a funder against that risk, you buy what is called an ATE insurance, which is a fairly standard product in litigation funding markets. Now, where it gets interesting is that you can negotiate with an insurance company to extend that cover to your own cost. And what we do is only funding disbursement costs, so the cost associated with the litigation itself. And that's what makes it possible. Uh, and so we've structured a policy whereby, you know, if we lose a case, which, you know, is fairly rare, <laughs> but uh, when we lose a case, then uh, we are covered in relation to the cost of the other side. But, you know, we also get the capital back from what we've spent. And that amounts to capital protection to a large extent. I mean, if you believe that the insurance policy uh, is gonna is gonna pay off, um, you know, and that essentially means if the insurance company is strong enough, then you can fairly assume that um, you know your downside is limited to. We just lost you there for a moment. Sorry, I think the the, the Zoom line uh, just froze a bit. You ah, said it's okay. limited to. Um, so basically, uh, to to a very to a very small amount of risk. Um, so worst so... case scenario, if an investor was to put in a million dollars and they've got exposure to these twenty five thousand claims, and not one of those twenty five thousand claims come to fruition and didn't produce anything, what would be their worst case scenario? So essentially, if you assume that the uh, insurance uh, policy is going to pay off, which I think is a fairly safe assumption, um, then effectively, you know, the capital would be safe. And uh, not only the capital, but also the interest that uh, you're entitled to receive and the performance you're entitled to receive will also be for a large extent protected. Because depending on the terms of the insurance policy, sometimes we also cover some of the interest. 
So, Laurent, tell us a little bit about, you say, we're lending the money to the law firm to run the case so they can pay the lawyers, they can pay for the photocopiers, everything else. Now, when I'm in private debt and thinking about this, I, you know, I want a property on the other side or I want fixed assets that I know that are collateral that I can, uh, you know, go and use. And in this case, I'm sort of thinking about, you know, a legal office with a photocopier mm-hmm. that owns 10,000 claims. So you walk in and you repossess the photocopier and you own 10,000 claims, but then you've got a problem of how do you run those, et cetera. In your mind, what is the strength of that collateral? Um, yes, it's a very good question. So if you remember, we are at heart structured lenders. So basically this is a field, this is an area where we, I think, have a very strong edge. Now, when we extend a loan to a law firm, for them to draw under the facility they have to submit to us first a list of claims so you know essentially it's a list where we've got the name we've got all the characteristics of the claimants and we have to vet every single claim Um, so that's one thing um, that's important to understand we don't just you know extend a line to a law firm and say you know do whatever you want with it no it's a very specific uh, line of credit that can only be use, uh, used for certain uh, purpose, and that those purposes are basically um, uh, uh, you know cost associated with the litigation itself. Uh, they can't pay for you know uh, the photocopier or the coffee, <laughs> or you know uh, serve themselves a dividend. Of course, and, you know that sort of things is impossible. So it's funding the time and materials of the lawyers running the case. Yes, effectively, it's court fees, it's insurance, and it's experts fee. Um, you know, that's fairly limited. Now, in terms of the security we get against that, uh, there's various levels of security. We've got a first claim on the performance fee attached to a claim. You know, when you fund a claim like that, uh, there is behind a contract between the law firm and the claimant. The claimant basically is offered a deal whereby the law firm does everything, uh, you know, from the KYC, the onboarding, of course, all the way to, you know, going to court, applying to courts, uh, re- managing the case, uh, managing uh, the cash flows, etc. So they do everything. And in exchange for that, they take about a third of the damages in case of success. Um, so that's quite important to, to understand. But... Uh, equally important, at least from our perspective, is who's going to get paid first uh, for the, the share of the fees that goes to the law firm. So we we negotiate that, and typically we are quite high in what we call the waterfall, which means that we get paid, you know, fairly early. So this is like the capital structure of the of the success fee. That's absolutely correct. And what does so, that normally look like? Is that client first, then yourselves, then the legal firm, or yes. That that's about right. Yes, um, but we do get a, f- a fixed and floating charge on the balance sheet of the law firm. Now, balance you know, sheets of law a, firms are probably pretty thin. I would say partners tend to make their profits, distribute it out each quarter, and off they go. That's typically how a law firm is run. But here we're looking at a slightly different uh, animal, and that's because. Typically, those law firms have funded a fairly large amount of claims on their own on their own balance sheet. You know, before contracting with us, before you know getting our money or you know our clients' money, they typically uh, do that uh, you know themselves, 
and um, they, they they tend to have a very large amount of claims on which they are entitled to a fee, which means that their balance sheet is typically very strong and certainly much stronger than the next law firm, uh, more classic law firm. And so that's interesting from that perspective. We get a fixed and floating charge on the balance sheet, and that you know makes for a fairly interesting level of security. Now, uh, we also, when we can, which is most of the time, uh, ask the directors of the law firm to provide us with a, a personal guarantee of a certain level. And in itself, it's not necessarily a very, very strong security, but it's important for us because, you know, psychologically, we want them to understand that they are on the hook and um, that, you know, they, they've got a very, very strong incentive to pay us back. And so Laurent, have, that's you, also... have you ever had to enforce uh, and, and collect uh, and, and use that collateral in the past? And if so, what has the experience been like? No, no, we, ne we never had to do that. In fact, you know, um, it's it's a very interesting space, litigation funding, but also generally private debt, because if you do that properly, if you do asset-backed private debt, uh, it's very rare for you to be in the position uh, to enforce and seize the collateral and, and sell it. If I look at what we've done in the firm over the last five years and, and before, because obviously, you know, our staff has got very substantial experience in the space, I can only point to one instance uh, about 10 years ago when uh, we had uh, in a different different fund, a different line of business, if you want, we had to seize a, uh, an asset and sell it. And it was actually a very positive experience. I think the recovery rate was 106%. Uh, so, but, it, you know, if you do things properly, that when there's default, you charge very high rates of interest. But, um, you know, uh, we never had to do it in our litigation funding funds, um, and hopefully we won't have to do it because it's a fairly um, cumbersome and, and, and paper-heavy, if you want, uh, process. <laughs> so, Laurent, one of the things you spoke about up the front was the very attractive nature of the asset class and this concept of winning 50% uh, of the time but then winning four times the amount of capital you have to put in which gives you this very nice, attractive IRR for the asset class. I think one of the key things, if I've seen the literature correctly, is that your win rate or the win rate of catch and the, the, the lawyers that you're backing and the pools of claims that you're funding is far superior to the market. Is that correct? That's correct. Our win rate is well in excess of 90%. And that's not because we do things better than the next guy. It's just that we're backing... We back in claims that um, have a very very high rate of success. Um, these are claims again, you know, that uh, that have a very sound legal background. Um, you know, at the end of the day, you know, when you're looking at consumer abuse, the facts are very telling. Generally, you know, there's no discussion about who's guilty or who's not guilty. You know, at the end of the day, it's fairly it's fairly st straightforward. So the economics and the performance of this must have been very good. Can you tell us? over the period of time you've been running this strategy, how's the performance played out? Uh, the return on assets of the portfolio has been well in excess of 40% per annum, um, which is uh, consistent with uh, what we're aiming for. Um, so one thing we haven't touched upon, David, is the terms of, uh, of funding the law firms. 
Um, and those terms tend to be fairly consistent across everything we do. We charge a fixed interest of between 18 and 25% per annum. So fairly substantial, I would say. And then we ask the law firm to give us a portion of the damages. So if you remember, two thirds of the damages more or less go to the claimant, goes to the claimant. And then the balance goes to the law firm. And the law firm uses uh, those proceeds to pay for our interest, but also they give us a portion of the upside. If you combine the interest and the upside, you get to a level of around 40, 45% per annum. So obviously extremely attractive, especially in relation to the risk, um, given that how we have structured uh, our downside. Um, but if you look at the historical run rate of the portfolio, you get to that level. You get to around 40, 45% per annum. And this is where you're structuring this uh, you know, 8% sort of income with another 8%, but that 8% is capped. It'll never be more than that to the investor in, in this fund. Um, so I guess yeah. you know, th these are super normal profits we're talking about. Um, and normally, you know, my economics background tells me when they're super normal profits, these will be competed away and other funding facilities will come in offering less. And, you know, I hear 25 is very high, um, although one might say, uh, given the level of inflation in the UK recently, it may well have needed to be, but hopefully that gets under control. Um, what's your view of how long these type of returns will last for? Because it just seems that, you know, this can't go on forever in a day. It'll be competed away. That's absolutely right. Uh, we tend to see an erosion of that abnormal premium over time in everything we do. Um, so if I look at what we do in bridge lending in the UK, which is, you know, essentially lending to developers uh, on a senior secured basis, we charge around 12% per annum at the moment um i think the level the correct level of uh, return considering the risk should be around you know maybe three to five percent uh so the abnormal premium is still there and it's a fairly niche but mature market and 10 years ago uh you would be charging 18 percent mm -hmm. so as you can see there's about you know in the course of 10 years 50 percent of this abnormal premium that has been eroded now it's fairly slow. Uh, it's there. It's a phenomenon that we see across everything we do, but it's fairly slow, you know. Uh, and it's a good lesson. It's very interesting in relation to people who think that, you know, capital markets are efficient. They're not that efficient, at least in what we do. Uh, but certainly, you know, over time, you see, um, you know, capital being attracted to higher return spaces. And that's going to be the case for litigation funding as well. Um, however, I think we have a few years of, you know, really attractive, good returns ahead of us. So Laurent, let's talk a little bit about the risks. Um, and at the same time, can I get you to touch on the ESG? Because, you know, whenever I talk litigation funding, there's going to be a proportion of clients who say, no, no, that's not for me. I don't believe in it ethically. Um, and then also in, in from particularly the Australian listeners, they will have been familiar with Slater and Gordon, a large legal firm in Australia that expanded to the UK in this space and got themselves into trouble. Talk, can you just mm -hmm. talk to me about, firstly, the ASG uh, sort of risks, and then also, you know, the legislative type of risks? Sure. So um, if you think about what we do uh, from a qualitative perspective, we basically always back the small guys against the big guys. Um, looking at our portfolio at the moment, 
you know, on the defendant's side, you find very large insurance companies, very large banks, large institutions that typically we think um, have been abusing the position of power against smaller individual consumers. And um, we are bringing access to justice to these people. You know, without us, they wouldn't have the willingness, the ability, the money, the time, the energy uh, to litigate. And what we are telling them is, look, you know, we take care of everything. Uh, you trust us with your case. We don't buy your case. We just fund your case. And if you win, you know, the, the upside is fairly attractive, we think. But regardless of what's happening, you don't owe us anything. You don't owe us a penny. You don't have to disburse a penny uh, to, to get access to justice. And at the moment, we have 25,000 people who rely on us. Uh, to to do that, we we are bringing them a, a large amount of expertise as well. You know, these are law firms that have very strong expertise in their field. They've been doing that for years. Uh, they're very highly qualified lawyers. They've invested heavily in the infrastructure of their law firm because, you know, a lot of what we do is about logistics, and that means that we ha they have to have, um, you know, the right software, um, and that that costs a lot of money. They have to have the right people. All that costs money, and it's an investment that we make to make sure that people effectively get access to justice. And of course, we want to make money in the meantime, but there's this added benefit that, in my view, is quite important when you make an investment. And that's the social aspect of, of our investments, um, and that's what makes the fund ESG compliant. And do you find, or is there much noise in the UK around politicians or legislators saying, hey, we, we don't like this activity and we may step in to regulate it? Well, um, not really, because, um, again, you know, the because type of like the, the, the little guy against the big corporate. Yes, I mean, it's always possible that someone randomly uh, in the parliament says, you know, that's not, that's not on, you know, that shouldn't be. That shouldn't be uh, that shouldn't be existing that sort of activity. But it's when you think about it, it's fairly you know unlikely, because again you know we are doing something that's very not controversial. Um, we are backing and allowing people to get access to justice, uh, which is which is very important in a democracy. You know you need to be able to you know get redress um, when you are a victim of a crime. And um, it has to be said that in the UK, just like elsewhere, it's typically a very difficult, long and costly process. Here, what we're trying to do um, you know, on an ancillary basis is to allow people uh, access to justice um, on, on claims that are real uh, and on damages that, are, you know, that you can quantify as well. And Laurent, are there any main risks which I haven't outlined or touched on? Well, I guess that you know, um, it, it's 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 a funny it's a funny um, situation that we are in because um, it's such a profitable space that in a way you can carve out for yourself a very secure position by spending a bit of money, for example, on insurance and structure and exposure that is very uh, conservative, but at the same time, very profitable. So anything, any identified risk, uh, we have worked on to basically reduce to a minimum amount. So for example, uh, the legal risk is limited because uh, we are insured. 
the currency risk is completely hedged away. But there are certain risks that effectively, you know, you, you cannot uh, hedge against. And that's, for example, implementation risk. Uh, if you look at the facilities we put in place, these are fairly complicated documents. You know, they are, there's the loan facility, there's all the security levels that we have in place. And, you know, just like everybody, when you do something, there's always a risk of, you know, making a mistake. So you can diversify that risk probably for a large uh, extent by, by simply diversifying your portfolio. Um, but there's always the risk of implementation. Uh, so that's, I guess, one thing. And then the second thing is what I call the unknown unknowns. Uh, you never know until you get there uh, that you basically missed something. <laughs> so I always, you know, ask myself, what is it that we've forgotten? What is it that, you know, you can protect against? And um, it's thing that you can't get a definitive answer to. Uh, but at the same time, it's our job. So that's what we're trying to do, try to figure out what we've forgotten. Terrific. Laurent, well, thank you very much. I really appreciate your time, and I'm sure our listeners will get a lot of value out of that. Thank you very much for joining us at Inside the Rope. Thank you, David. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.